You are tuning into Pro Bono Perspectives, live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspectives brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Holly, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and the skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. I am excited to welcome today Dan Noyes, the co-CEO of Tech Goes Home for a special pro bono week conversation on digital inclusion. Tech Goes Home is a fantastic nonprofit based in Massachusetts that's dedicated to addressing the digital inequities that pose significant barriers to opportunities and success for students, workers, and families. Common Impact has worked with Techos Home on multiple skills-based engagements over the year. And actually, just a few days ago, Dan joined us for our Skills for Cities community conversation, where we spoke about the intersection of digital inclusion and racial equity with Angela Seifer of the National Digital Inclusion Alliance and Latricia Boone of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You should really check out that conversation. It gave a great high-level overview of the nature of the challenge, and it was in the context of an incredible event where more than 170 folks came together to tangibly support organizations that are fighting digital, the digital divide every day. So a huge inspiration. Because of it, we wanted to deep dive with Dan a little bit more and get his honest take on why the digital divide exists and how fundamental the changes are that are needed to bridge it. Dan, it is so good to have you here today. Thank you again for joining me for the second time this week. Oh, it's an honor. I, I, I love this. I had such a great time at the uh, doing the panel the other day with uh, such an incredible group of panelists, but also an incredible group in the audience. And Wednesday at, at Common Impact's flagship event, Skills for Cities, we had Dan join Angela and Latricia, and you can get a recording of this um, to talk through digital inclusion, what it means, the history of it, and how we can work together to start to solve this incredibly big challenge. But wanted to pull Dan away and hear a little bit more about and what brings you to this work and the organization that you're the co-CEO of, Tech Goes Home, does incredible work in Massachusetts trying to bridge the digital divide. Give us a little bit of your background. How'd you get here? Why are you here? What does Tech Goes Home do? Oh, such a Thank you for the question. That's awesome. And first, let me just say, Daniel, I'm so excited to be here. I mean, I just, Common Impact, we've been such a fan of your organization for so long, and, and you all do such amazing work, including for us. So uh, we really appreciate it. My background is, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts and um, left a bit for, for college and then spent some time in Washington, D.C. and decided to leave before I became too cynical. So I, I wanted, I was working up on Capitol Hill and I needed something more hands-on. And uh, so I decided there was nothing more hands-on than working in, in schools. So I went and worked in Boston Public Schools for about 10 years and it was great. I mean, it was an incredible experience. I, I certainly learned more than I ever taught 
in that setting from the uh, from the students and my my colleagues who were from so many different walks of life and backgrounds and it was just it was an incredible experience but it was also a humbling experience and and in some ways a um, difficult experience because we often saw the level of resources that the students had in the school were 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 good i mean they weren't always what we wanted but they were good and in one of the middle schools i was at it was a one-to-one laptop school so we had 650 kids with 650 macbooks and it was great but the challenge was that they couldn't take the machines home not because we didn't trust the kids but because of where the school was, it really put the students in danger. Uh, kids get, you know, attacked for sneakers, never mind a $1,000 laptop in their backpack. So we just, we just couldn't do it. What that meant was that learning, at least 21st century learning, could only take place at, at school because so many of the students had, had nothing in the way of technology at home. There was no internet. There was no machine. They also didn't have family members who had experience using these devices or learning with these devices. So it just just set up a, a recipe for, for um, not just not being able to do what we want to do. So in 2009 or 2010, uh, me along with the principals went off and started work on a citywide initiative in Boston called Tech Goes Home, where we basically wanted to bridge that gap. We said, listen, we want this learning to be all over the place. It can't just be in the school. So we, we started bringing in families to learn how to use devices and we got family devices and helped them sign up with internet. And, and then it just grew from there where we said, well, it shouldn't just be school families. It's why not seniors? Why not people who are unemployed? Why not, you know, the 25 year old who doesn't speak English or, or whatever group it was. And, and from there, Techos Home grew into really what it is now which is a organization that serves thousands of people. We've got hundreds of partnerships and uh, simply put, we, we get everyone a computer. We make sure everyone that needs it has internet access and we give uh, people internet skills training, but really life skills training to help them achieve whatever goals they have in their life, whether it be find a job or get healthy or uh, manage finances uh, or some as simple as I just want to be able to video chat with my grandkids. I mean, it's, it's really as uh, simple as that sometimes. So that's, that's me and that's what we do. And you've talked about what Tech Goes Home does as solving a symptom of the problem. So bring us back for a moment. Why does the digital divide exist? What is happening? What does this landscape look like? I know it's been in headlines so much in the past 18 months because the pandemic pushed us all into a virtual environment and so made much more visible the challenge that was already there uh, where you know students didn't have access to education and community members didn't have access to health care employment opportunities but this started when technology was born right <laughs> why why does it exist yeah, I love that. In fact, you said this the other day. You said the digital divide started when the first computer rolled out. And I was like, that's such a brilliant way to put it because it's, it's just so true. It's a very, very clear image of it. And I, I totally agree that, you know, what Techos Home does is, you know, we're the NyQuil of this, you know, scenario. It's like we're, we see the cough, we see the runny nose, and, and we try to fix that. Why does it exist? I have lots of theories. 
about why it exists. Uh, I will throw in the caveat that I'm okay with saying, I don't know. Like, I, I'm okay with saying that. Like, I, I think we need to have more conversations about this. So what I will say is that, you know, the digital divide, number one, is clearly a racial justice issue. Like, when you look at all of the statistics from health to education to workforce development, they all, all the statistics point at the fact that if you are Black or Latin or basically if you are not white, you are disproportionately impacted by the digital divide to a huge degree. We're not talking about small margins here. If you were a Black student, you are twice as likely than a white student not to have internet home. If you are a Black or Latin senior, you are twice and three times as likely not to be able to access telemedicine as opposed to a white senior. If you are a young Black worker, you are twice as likely not to have necessary digital skills uh, for the workplace. I mean, these numbers are staggering. So clearly racism and, you know, structural racism play a huge part into why the digital divide exists. And then there's obviously issues of income. Like this is another step. Like if you look at all the statistics about who has internet and who doesn't, the, the through line for so much, so much of this is if you have money, you have great internet. If you don't have money, you don't. I mean, I, I don't think that's going to shock anyone. <laughs> that's, I think so much. So much of so many of the issues we face today are, are you know, because you know we've got income inequality and, and so many of the other issues that we discussed. So as for why the digital divide exists, I think it's, it's going to be a combination of poverty and it's going to and, and and racism. I think what needs to happen is us to and this is nonprofit sector, corporations, governments to really step up and say not one organization can solve this. Uh, I think right now there, there seems to be a, a feeling that if we, you know, let's give more money to internet service providers to, to provide more service for low-income people. And I'm just like, that's not going to solve the problem. That's, again, we're dealing with symptoms. So I hope that if there is a silver lining to this horrible pandemic is that more people, one, are aware of the fact that this, these problems exist, but then two, are more willing to have conversations about the issues that cause the digital divide. What do we need to do to keep people's attention on it now that we are moving away from the heart of the pandemic, right? Kids are back in school and um, we're starting to have access to more in-person services safely. We have vaccines, we have vaccine boosters. And it's a horrible analogy, but it, it calls to mind public attention, corporate attention when there's a hurricane, right? Like disaster <laughs> season is in September and we don't really think about funding natural disasters in the off season. And it, we come in impact have done a lot of work on actually it's a terrible thing, right? And we need to work on resiliency and disaster preparedness and response all year long. A lot of organizations do that um, and have been beating that drum for years, decades, and the dynamic still exists. And the cynical part of my mind says, is that going to happen to this spotlight on digital inclusion? right now as we move back to quote unquote normal? It's such a fantastic question. And one, again, that I don't think there's a clear answer to, obviously, because we're still in the midst of a 
of a pandemic. But I would say I'm hopeful in that so many more doors have been opened to us as an organization in the last year and a half than ever were before, whether it be corporate or, or government or foundational or, or, you know, even within our own sector, more people are paying attention to this. Uh, I also, I think that uh, the world has changed forever. And I think some of what has changed is is good. Like I, I think, like take medicine, for example. I think, I think telemedicine is here to stay. And that, I think that is a good thing for, for society, that it, it, it does mean easier access to, to doctors and, and medical care. However, there's just so many people that can't access telemedicine. So my hope is that people will see in, you know, whether it be a corporation or government, that there is a significant benefit to society. And like for the corporate side, it's, it's a money thing for government, but hopefully it's the health of uh, our society to, to make sure that everyone has access to this. And this is where it comes in. It's like, all right, well, if all seniors have access to telemedicine, then it means less trips to the ER. It means you know, all the things that you know, are way over my head when it comes to the bottom line for insurance companies, but they have an incentive to, to make this happen. And I hope that, you know, that they'll continue to pay attention to organizations like Tech Goes Home and others who are trying to do this work. Uh, the other thing I would say that uh, more organizations, I would argue need, more organizations, nonprofits need to do is really look at advocacy work. That sometimes in the nonprofit sector, we have this, um, you know, keep your head down mentality uh, of, you know, you know, focus on the work, focus on the work. And I, I, I think that's obviously important, but at the same time, like we need to tell our stories. And when, when, what I mean by that, when I say ours, it's not my story. We need to tell the story of the people we're serving. Like their voices need to be heard because for so long they haven't. The communities we're serving are, have been oppressed and for so long and they you know they need to be liberated and for that to happen their voices need to be heard and you know organizations like ours who do on the ground work we have a responsibility to lift those voices and i think so getting into the advocacy game you know having uh, people on staff whose job it is to talk with state legislatures or federal officials or whoever it might be talk to city councils and mayors and to ensure that what you just said, like these topics don't go away. Uh, I think that's a that's something, uh, I think we'd be better off if more organizations did that. And one of the things that you have talked about being most critical to that collaboration and so the mix between what we need here, which is actual access, broadband and hardware access, digital literacy, education, and advocacy you've said time and time again we don't have good data we don't we don't really understand the problem i think it's very connected to what you were talking about around highlighting spotlighting the stories of the folks that are actually being served here versus those that are serving curious what you mean by that what does it mean to not have good data in this space such a great question thank you for that and it, it, it's very frustrating for us because you know, high level decisions are often made based on data. So like take the census, for example, 
So when it comes to allocation of resources from the federal government to cities and towns and states and or from states to cities and towns, it's usually based on census data. But everyone who knows anything about the census acknowledges that certain communities don't answer the census, that there's huge issues around this. And those communities tend to be communities, uh, communities of color and immigrants and, and groups that in many ways are most in need of the resources from the federal government, yet they're least likely to get them. And, and that's just, it's a tragedy. And I, I think, you know, if I can be blunt about this, I, the system was set up to do what it's doing. Like, it, you know, the system was set up not to serve the people that, that I think, and I know you think we should be serving most. So the system isn't broken. The system is doing what it was set up to do. What we need to do is we need to break the system and build a new one that has true representation of the people we're trying to serve. And I, I don't think you can get at that with the traditional method of here's a survey, here's your six questions, go. Like this really needs to be uh, community driven, and and I'm I'm not an expert in this, but I know people who are, and they're incredible people who are pushing things like participatory action research, which is called PAR. And if I can give a a shout out, there's an organization that we've become familiar with called the Black Brilliance Research Project, um, and uh, based out of Seattle, and and they they really push the model of turning members of the community into researchers essentially and having them determine what the question should be having them dive into what their neighbors are saying because there's so many issues of trust that exist that you know the typical census taker isn't going to understand that so i think we really need to get into this community this, this idea of community driven data um, to really get at, all right, what is the, specifically the, the digital equity is like, what, all right, where is the digital divide? What is it and what's causing it? And I think doing a participatory or community action uh, method is the only way we're going to get at that. And what that will then hopefully lead to is better data, which then governments can use to determine where resources go. So if they've got, you know, a billion dollars to spend, um, you know, if they had really good data, I, I think they, you know, where it's going now might shift. And I think that would be a, a, a big win for the communities that, that we serve. So another big question that we don't have the answer to since we're on that, <laughs> on that <theme laughs> conversation. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like, all your questions is like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that. No, well, sorry, people that always tease me. Like, it's very easy to ask those questions, Danielle. It's a lot harder to answer them. So <laughs> you are not alone in, in teasing me on that. So one of the things that has been the most sobering when we're thinking about digital inclusion and the pandemic is the recovery and this uh, a little about what we were talking about before right like this moment is not ending and the recovery is going to be really uneven and i remember at the i think it was something like um april or may last year i was talking to right in the heart of when it was really um the pandemic was really hitting the states I spoke to Greg Bethile, who runs an organization here in New York called Pencil, and 
they do a lot of educational programs. And one of the things he said to me just sticks with me, which is there are enormous swaths of kids who are not getting an education this year. It doesn't mean that they're skipping a year of education. It means they're not coming back to school. It means they have exited the educational system forever for whatever reason, right? The, the ways in which their families have had to reconfigure their lives to keep them home or the things that they have had to do to um, make ends meet while the pandemic was hitting hard. And that to me, like the, the implications and the long-term recovery for those who didn't have access to the basics in the past 18 months, to me, it just, it, it stymies me. Um, mm -hmm. What is that? What has that looked like in your work? What have you seen? Should I be more optimistic than I am? <laughs> oh, Danielle, I don't want to dampen optimism. I think optimism is important. Hope is important. But I also, let's not sugarcoat anything, right? Um, the pandemic has been horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible to levels I never could even have understood uh, for the communities that I serve. I, I just just an example is pre-pandemic, the unemployment rate amongst our adult learners uh, was typically around 20, 25 percent, which is really high. This is pre-pandemic. During the pandemic, that unemployment rate shot up to mid 40s. So I think 46 was as high as it got. And right now, it's currently at 35%. I mean, just think about that for a second. That, and, it, it, and that is such a huge number of people that were out of work. And, and so I, someone asked me the other day, it's like, how can that be? And, and I said, well, think about the people that I serve. They, they're you know, they're the, the construction worker. They're the, the person who washes dishes in the back of the restaurant. They're the person that cleans the office building. And this, this is a perfect example, I think, of, you know, people have been celebrating in some ways the new, the new way we work. Like, so you can work from anywhere and work from home and, and, and it's great. And I, and I think for, you know, for 70% of people, it's awesome. It, it's, you know, I love being home more. And, and I think that, I think a lot of people do, but what that, you've got to think about what does that do? to you know the, the trickle down impact of that means that say for example the office building doesn't need to be cleaned as much which means that the you know the person who's cleaning the building gets laid off and then where are they going to find a job and or the restaurants that are open during the day aren't as open anymore because there aren't as many workers and what happens is the person who's you know at the back end of the restaurant gets laid off and and now we've got some government assistance that's been helping, but that's not going to last forever. And I just, so, and on the education front, you know, I know in Boston, something, uh, don't, don't fully quote me on the, the stat, but something to the effect of 40% of juniors and seniors were chronically absent uh, last year. And there's so many reasons for that. Uh, one of which, this is just anecdotal because uh, someone, a student told me this, was that they had to watch their their um, younger brother because mom had to go work to make money so you know they could live. And it's like, well, what's more important? That kid's obviously doing a Zoom session, or what about you do with the little brother? So it just to your point, I think 
this goes back to what I was saying earlier, is that the system was terrible before the pandemic. It got worse. So the idea that if we just go back to where we were, which we're still not there, even there yet, that it would be better, it's just, it's, it's delusional. I mean, I, I just, so for you, I, I do really worry that we've, we're going to have a generation of young people who are not equipped with the skills they need to succeed. And what is that, what is, how does that trickle down? So I don't know. I, I'm hopeful in that I think there's more people paying attention to the issue and the conversations are taking place. And here we are having a, you know, a conversation about it where we might not have two years ago. So I, I think that is a, is a good thing, but this is a huge issue. And I mean, like I said, the digital divide is a symptom of it because, you know, you, if you can't get online, you can't look for that job. If you can't look for the job, you can't get the job. Or if you can't get online, you can't do your schoolwork. If you can't do your schoolwork, you drop out of school. It's like there's so many, uh, you know, ladders to, <laughs> to problems. Right. Well, and gates that are wide open to allow people to leave the system, right? Or push them right. out. So one of the things that I love about you is that you tell us what we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> what is wrong? What is bad? Uh, and, you know, I think I, I am a huge believer in business as a force for good, right? That's why I'm in the work that I'm in. And I think there's a lot of really meaningful and um, there's real progress being made with private sector engagement in social issues. And I think there's still a lot of, because the sectors are so disconnected and because that voice of the folks that are actually requiring these services um, is still so muted, there's still a lot that's misdirected, right? There's, I, I mm -hmm. think we were talking about disaster resiliency before, right? And this is crisis resiliency in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the, the number of in-kind donations that or tech product that end up in either the wrong hands or in the right hands without the right training. Uh, it's just, um, it's, it permeates all, all levels of philanthropy and engagement. So if, for the folks that are listening to this podcast, they're often folks that are in corporate social responsibility or sustainability roles in companies or they're leading nonprofits. What, what are we doing wrong? Mm. Oh, such a good question and, and one that uh, I love answering. <laughs> your point. I love hearing your answers. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, well, first of all, stop uh, stop sending people to me and saying, do, do you have a wall to paint? Do you have a, you know, do you, ha do you have a little piece of grass that some of my employees can rake? Um, we had an organization come to us and say, I've got 200 people that want to do a one hour task. It has to be on this specific date at this specific time. And it needs to be in this specific area of the city. And it was just like, you know, expletive, expletive, expletive in my head. Like, why are you trying to make my job harder? I have a hard job as is. My job is not easy. And for a corporation to reach out and say, well, I want you to benefit my employees by bending over backwards to do something that you don't really need to do is offensive. It's offensive. And I, I don't know if people don't realize it, 
I mean, I had a, we had another situation where we had an event going on in the neighborhoods where we serve. And it was like this great event where families could come together, they could learn. It was like this really fun thing. And one corporation had like, oh, we're excited. We've got 22 volunteers that are going to show up. None of them showed up. None of them showed up and there was no accountability for it. And so, and just one last example before I just I'll, I'll stop venting is I went to, uh, you know, we'll occasionally do lunch and learns and things like that with, with companies. And there was a tech consulting company, like a big one that brought us in and we met with about 25 or 30 employees who were very engaged and nice um, and, and great. But we said, we actually point blank asked, like, what can we do to, to make this a good experience for you? And, and the consensus was that we need to make it easy. We need to make it um, um, able to cancel at last minute. We need to make it uh, close to where they live. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, like everyone in this room is making six figures. The people that I'm serving don't live in your neighborhood. Like, uh, what is going on? So on the other side of this question, what I would say is if, if it is uh, someone who's trying to organize volunteerism is I would rather have one or two super passionate people who want to dedicate themselves both heart and mind to a cause than 15 or 100 or 150 that want to give me one hour. And I know that doesn't look good on a, you know, a company newsletter or a spreadsheet. It doesn't make for the the best picture, if you will, like a physical picture. But in terms of the impact it can have on an organization, I mean, we, the other side of this is we do have a number of partners, corporate partners and others that totally get that. And, and what they do is we partner with them and they will actually, so our, our courses are 15 hours typically. Uh, and they, you know, they, they're always 15, but they typically spread out over, you know, a month or two. And we've got corporations that send people that, you know, for all 15 hours and they show up. And I will tell you that afterwards, those individuals tell me it was one of the best experiences of their life and they stay with us. That's what's interesting too, is even beyond us. And then what usually ends up happening is that the, the, the sites they're running our, our TechOSOM sessions basically recruit those individuals to continue volunteering even after TechOSOM. So, yeah. So I apologize if that was too honest, but it's just, I, like, we got to work together on this. And the other thing I would say too, is that corporations, it's not just corporations, but in general, you've got brilliant people working there. I mean, these are brilliant people. And I think there's such a lost opportunity to work with individuals uh, in the communities I'm serving. Like if you're thinking about, you know, your financial company or, or whatever it is, it's just like, you need new customers, you need new employees. And it's just, I mentioned earlier, I've got, an, you know, the communities I'm serving, unemployment rate of 35%. Well, I've got an army of people that could be employees. How about you go into those communities and start having those conversations about, hey, are you interested in being a tech person? Are you interested in working in a bank? Are you interested in getting into the health industry? And then how do we do that at a massive scale? And I think, you know, Obviously, I think digital inclusion is a great first step because I think you need those basic tools to get started. Uh, but I think there's such potential. There's such potential for this if uh, if the you know people pay more attention to it. Right. Well, and 
we could have hours long conversation around what's wrong with volunteer engagement right right now um, <laughs> and uh, being driven by you know numbers of volunteers versus the meaning of volunteer engagement but i do think where you landed is also an enormous opportunity for the business sectors to think about their workforce yeah. and the lack of diversity in their workforce and how to build uh, articulate those skills and build those skills in a, a more diverse set of their employees and candidates and where they're finding candidates because as we oh, talked wow. about on Wednesday right we've got still a lot of white guys in hoodies making decisions um, yep. in the tech industry and we have a lot of people of color that are serving as technicians and that is the um, that is often the ceiling for tech roles and that's got to change because we've got to change the way that technology is designed and distributed from when it's being scratched up on a whiteboard, not when it's developed um, to your point earlier, the system is doing exactly what it intends to do. <laughs> and so right, we need to change right. the system and the folks that are making decisions within it. So good. So I could talk to you forever. I will. Um, I've been told time and time again that I need to keep these episodes to 30 minutes and it's really <laughs> annoying. I'm just going to put it out there because these are so, these conversations are so rich and so hard to cap. Um, but I will follow my marching orders and would love to just end with what the best part of your day is, Dan. I, you know, you do, you see this work every day and even just talking about it is so sobering and it just makes clear how large the challenge is what keeps you going yeah i think we've had we've also we had this like you know it's been very high level and i'm going to take this and make it very uh micro if you will there's two things that keep me going one is my kids is just being able to come home and and get it. my six-year-old comes over and punch me punches me in the gut or something and i just <laughs> i love every moment of it and my 10 year old is now in the uh, phase of, uh, I get half a word when I ask her things. It's not even like a yes anymore. It's like a, <laughs> so she, uh, she's in that phase of life, but I just, I love every second of it. And then at the, on the work side, uh, again, getting very, uh, you know, micro, the people I work with. I mean, I, I have this team of people that I, I'm, you know, I'm part of, um, you know, my, my co-CEO, you know, Theodore Hannah is just, and she's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And and then the rest of my team is, um, they make coming to work every day amazing. And uh, they're so passionate and smart uh, and, and dedicated. So so that is, uh, that's what keeps me going. That's what it comes down to, right? That's what it comes yeah. down to. And I'm glad they keep you going because just so appreciative of the, the work you do and the work that Tech Goes Home does. It's been just an honor to be able to partner with you over the years and to get your ear for two times this week. Thank you again for that. I love it. And, um, hope we and we didn't even we didn't even have to talk about New York sports because being from Boston, when you set a podcast, I know you guys are in Brooklyn and I'm just like, well, is she a Yankee fan? I don't know if I can do this, that type of stuff. But uh, we, we avoided talking about that. So that's good. You'll be happy to know that I am both a Red Sox fan and a Mets fan. Really? Yeah. So I grew up a Mets fan in New York. Then I moved to Boston at right. In, I was there in 2005 to 2010, which was like the heat of when the Red Sox were 
making their glorious rise back to power. <laughs> Love it. Um, and so I got hooked and I actually get a whole lot of heat from my team down here <laughs> for not being <laughs> a Yankees fan. But I think, I think that would be an easy conversation for us, Dan. I'm just saying we yeah, can go well, there. Next time we, 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 have, we can have a podcast dedicated to the fact that the Yankees just aren't very good anymore. And the Red Sox have been <laughs> so good and, uh we, we can definitely have that and then we could talk about the jets too because they're they're such a great franchise right yikes no i love it hey no in all seriousness no danielle this has been awesome and common impact does such amazing work um we're proud to be a part of yours so thank you thank you again for joining us. thanks so much for listening to pro bono perspectives today if you like our show and want to learn more check out our website at commonimpact.org Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune in to our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.